My name is Vikram Rathor, and I'm here with another episode on our podcast, Recess Podcast. Today we have in front of me Nishim Keshavaji, and uh, he's a real estate professional in the industry. So I'd like him to tell him tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks for having me on, Vic. I really appreciate it. I'm excited to be here and uh, recording this podcast with you. Uh, yeah, so to tell you, but to tell you about myself, I mean, I could tell you a little bit about uh, about my background and sort of uh, professional and education, how I ended up where I am today. So I'll, starting, I guess at the start, um, I grew up in Calgary, did high school here, and when I finished, I went on to the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario. Um, so I did, I did my undergrad there in, in business, and then came. I, I was graduating uh, in two thousand and nine, which was an interesting time in the market, as I'm Definitely. sure you know. Yeah. Um, so with, with the downturn, the financial crisis happening around that time, it was a very interesting job market. Um, and it, I think it's, it's not too dissimilar from what we may be coming into now with a bit of a recession, a bit of uh, turmoil in the markets. Um, at the moment, probably not as extreme, but, um, but it was an interesting time. And, and at the time, um, I wanted to get into management consulting, but uh, there weren't a lot of firms hiring, uh, just in general. Uh, whereas in Calgary, um, oil and gas firms were, were still actively hiring, and there's a lot of jobs out here. So, came back out here at the time uh, to Calgary in 2009 and started a career in oil and gas uh, accounting um, with a large oil company here. Um, and as part of that, I got an accounting designation. At the time, it was called the CMA. Chartered Management Accountant designation. Now it's sort of combined with the other accounting designations and it's sort of a CPA, CMA now. Uh, so anyway, I got that accounting designation. I worked in various roles in accounting and risk management. And then in 2012, I decided uh, to do an MBA. Uh, I wanted to um, learn a bit more, broaden my horizon and see what else was out there. So I did an accelerated MBA through Queen's University while I was working, uh, it was a twelve-month program. I did it while I was uh, while I was working and Where in school. Were you working at the time? I worked. The company was Imperial Oil. Imperial Oil. Okay. Yeah. So I was working there and, and doing that MBA. It was a really intense year for sure. Uh, there was a, a full workload uh, at my day job plus the MBA took up all my evenings, weekends, and vacation uh, time. So it was a really intense year, but I'm glad I did it. Um, and it sort of allowed me to pivot uh, my career from that accounting job at oil and gas into a management consulting job. So I joined a company called Accenture uh, at that time after I finished my MBA. And uh, I went into the strategy consulting practice, which is what I was thinking of doing initially when I, was, when I graduated university in 2009. Um, so I did that for a couple of years. Uh, I thought the work was interesting at the start and uh, it, it was, uh, it was and there was also quite a bit of travel and uh, a very intense workload. So after a couple of years, my interest started to wane and uh, frankly, I was pretty exhausted from the workload that was there and all the travel. Um, so I left uh, management consulting knowing that I wanted to do something in real estate, but I didn't know exactly what it was I wanted to do. Um, so I, um, I, uh, growing up, I'd always been interested in real estate. It always sort of uh, was, was interesting and fascinating to me. But I, I never really you know, thought of doing it as a career because I always saw it as, as, as something that was risky or speculative and, and I didn't think or know much of a career path for it. And business school at the time really focused, uh, at least the business school I went to, focused on management consulting and investment banking and accounting and marketing as a career path. And I didn't really know there was really a real professional real estate path yeah even in today's school a lot of i think i think they say around 60 to 70 percent of majors are in accounting or finance 
usually in school. So it's still very heavily focused on accounting and finance, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah. So I, so it's um, so it's interesting. I'm, I'm glad I'm glad you're part of this organization and doing this because it's it's interesting and and hopefully more and more people learn about um, professional professional roles and jobs in, in commercial real estate or real estate in general because I think it's uh, it's quite fascinating and I had no idea about the industry uh, until many years after I graduated. Many years after, right? Yeah. So, so now we're around 2014 in your career, right? Around 2014. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I, I joined consulting in 2013. I left in 2015 and, um, and at the time I, I knew I wanted to do something in real estate but I didn't know exactly what it was. So I sort of started thinking you know, what, is it residential real estate or is it commercial real estate? And I think residential real estate, when I looked at that, I, I thought, you know, it may not be as much of a fit with my skill set as commercial real estate would be in terms of my background in finance and accounting. And so I decided commercial real estate is probably a better fit. And, and then within that, I looked at all sorts of different segments within commercial real estate. And I had a whole bunch of coffees and lunches with as many people as I could think of. Um, and, uh, and just wanted to learn about the industry and the different fields. So I explored um, everything from leasing to uh, commercial, uh, being a commercial realtor, to appraisal, to uh, quantity surveyor. There's a whole bunch of fields. And uh, one of the fields that really piqued my interest was commercial real estate finance. Uh, again, fit with my background. And I, and I always felt if you understand how the financing works for a commercial real estate project or deal, you really understand um, how the deal was put together and how it makes sense from start to finish. You're not just seeing one segment, you're seeing the whole picture. So that sort of really piqued my interest on financing. Um, and then and then within financing, you know, I, I thought commercial real estate financing, I could work for a lender, I could work for a bank or uh, any kind of lender in the industry. But then I started to realize that different lenders had different niches that they would lend in. Some lenders would lend in a certain asset class or a certain region or certain loan size. But what, what I thought was, was really interesting is when I looked at commercial real estate bro mortgage brokerage, um, that's the, the people that worked in that industry really understood the depth and breadth of commercial real estate financing because they worked with so many different lenders. They'd understood different asset classes, different loan types. And so that really piqued my interest. Was there someone you specifically met or something that made you get into this specifically? Yeah, so I, I ended up connecting with somebody I knew for many years previously that um, that worked for a commercial real estate mortgage brokerage. And I had a, a conversation with him and um, and he helped me understand uh, more about the industry. And that was that was really interesting. And so from there, you know, I, I took a, he was one of the first conversations I had, but after all the conversation I had, I went back to him and said, you know what, after everything I've learned, this is probably the space that I want to uh, grow in or do more in. And, and I asked him for any advice on on um, how I could get into the industry. And so luckily, the company he was working for was looking for new people. And so he put me forward to, um, uh, to send an application in or send a resume in and cover letter. and. I was able to get interviewed for that role uh, in that company. But what was actually quite interesting is that um, you know I was working as a senior consultant in in consulting for uh, right before that, and you know but I had uh, people that were consultants or analysts uh, in more junior levels to me, uh, and uh, I was supervising a lot of the work and, and things like that. So. The role that uh, in interviewing and, and learning about this industry, what I learned was that I would have to start at the very bottom. I'd have to take a big pay cut and I'd have to start at the very bottom, 
um, and really learn the industry from the ground up. Well, it's a big step down because you were a senior consultant before, right? So exactly. Going from that and knowing that I have to enter this industry and you know you have to start from the bottom. Now sometimes it's yeah. a little bit worrying. You know what I mean? When you're yeah. when you're, already, when you're a little bit comfortable already in your position, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so it, it was. It was. Uh, it wasn't an easy decision, but but looking back, it's probably one of the best things that I that I did. And I think if there's if I give some advice to students, it would be you know don't be afraid to take on a more junior role, or you know if you're somewhere in your career and you need to reset and go somewhere else, don't be afraid to do that. Improve yourself because if you wanna if you're passionate about it and determined to to succeed in a certain area or determined to get into a certain area, sometimes you have to take that step down or take that pay cut. Uh, and the best time to do is when you're younger, frankly. When you're younger, yeah, you don't. Doesn't I feel like it's uh, not as big of a deal if you make a mess up or something. You don't really have like maybe you don't have a family to support or a mortgage or like these bills and that bill. So when you take a risk and it goes wrong, you know you're still in the same position you were maybe a year ago or six months ago even. Exactly, exactly. Now is the time to explore and and really follow what you're passionate about. Um, so so anyway, so that so that was. Um, that was something that I did, and I, so I joined a, a large national commercial mortgage brokerage. Um, I think it was in around that time, 2015. What was the name of the uh, Canada ICI Capital. Canada ICI Capital. Yeah, so I joined them in 2015, around that time, and I uh, joined them as, as a junior analyst. And so from, from there, um, I, I got the opportunity to... Uh, to learn the industry really from the ground up, from from the very basics, um, and um, and it was really good. It was really good. I was I was lucky to have it. It was a really great, um, a really great training ground for me, and uh, I was I worked really hard as hard as I could and uh, tried to prove myself and really add value to the company and do a good job of what was in front of me. Even even though some some of the tasks were very junior and very administrative. I really wanted to just put my head down and work hard and, and learn the industry and um, and so I did that. So I did that so from 2015 to 2018. I, I worked uh, in in an analyst role. I got promoted to a senior analyst, um, and then and then eventually I, I I pushed to get into a sales role, and I got into a sales role um, more fully in 2018 as an associate director, and so that allowed me to bring in. Uh, my own business and and do my own deals and have my own book of business and so that started in 2018 um, and I started really from the from a base of zero I didn't have any clients didn't have any deals so that's that sounds very scary and very challenging you know when you don't have any clients or anything like that what did you do to kind of get your first client even yeah you know what it was actually um, I would I would drive around Calgary and I would look at at uh, at construction signs and construction sites and when there's a sign um, I would call the developer or the builder and ask them if they needed financing or needed help with financing, and uh, and I made some connections with some with some some uh, commercial realtors and and uh, some people in the industry like that, and and really just get, frankly gave away free advice and and free analysis and free service to say, you know, for example, if a commercial realtor had a had a listing, I'd say, well, I can analyze for you what I can get you for for financing. Um, and, and provide that to you and you can provide that to your clients and it's free of charge and you have no obligation to, to do anything for me. But, uh, but when I was starting out, I was just building those relationships and um, trying to help people that uh, they needed that help that were underserved. So yeah, so it started with a bunch of cold calls, but uh, I was quite fortunate that uh, I was able to get some momentum and, and get, uh, get some traction. So Start how long did it take to even get your first client when you went down this path? Uh, it took, took a couple months. Um, so it was, um, 
Yeah, wasn't wasn't too bad actually, and then I, I started growing from there. Do you ever kind of like in that moment when you know you didn't have any clients? Do you ever question like, did I make the right decision going down this path, or, or should I have just stuck with being a senior consultant? Yeah, it's a good question. I would say I, I never really thought about um, going back to being a senior consultant or going to management consulting because I was I really loved the work that I was doing and I really loved the industry that I was in. So it actually didn't feel like work to me. It actually felt like I was doing something super cool that I found really interesting. And and I was so kind of um, like involved in, in doing my day-to-day tasks that I wasn't really thinking about, you know, did I make the right decision or not? I was just focused on making it work because I really wanted to make it work. Yeah, you put your head down and you're working really hard. And then, so let's go, let's fast forward a bit. You know, you got your first couple of clients under your belt. And then, then what did you think? What did you think was the next step that you had to do? Yeah, so I got my, I got my first few clients under my belt. And then I think from there, uh, it was really a, a matter. My philosophy then became doing a really good job for my clients. And so I felt if I did a really good job for my clients, went above and beyond in providing good service, that they would come back and be loyal to me and work with me. Um, and especially when I started, a lot of my clients were quite small. They might have a small project, which they weren't really being served very well on. Maybe they were buying a small apartment building or maybe they were building uh, a small townhouse project, for example. But I especially aligned myself to people that I thought had high potential that I could grow with. So somebody that was ambitious that was maybe doing a small project but wanted to move on to bigger, bigger things. And so I focused on doing a really good job for them and servicing them really, really well so that they would stay with me and stay loyal to me. And they would also tell some of their compatriots or their colleagues about me as well. And so I got referrals through word of mouth that word way of mouth. Well. Word of mouth is one of the biggest ways to get it because yeah. you know, when you hear from someone like they did a really good job for you, you mm-hmm. know, like it's different than just seeing someone on a billboard or, you know, seeing someone's name on a bus stand or anything mm-hmm. like that. But when you know, like a friend or something has a good interaction with someone, I think that's one of the most valuable, valuable things. And I guess you use that to your advantage in, in growing your business. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I, that's, a, so that's sort of how it, how it started is, um, doing a really good job, word of mouth. And then it, you know, I grew with some of my clients. Um, and then I got some good referrals and I, and I grew that way as well. Um, I expanded to other geographies too, so uh, it wasn't just Calgary, but I started doing more deals in Edmonton and other parts of Alberta, and I got licensed in BC and started doing deals there, uh, which is which is a market I'm, I'm very active in right now, and then other other provinces throughout the country too, and it's uh, it's kept me really busy. And then um, specifically, like I know you were working at this place. What did you like? You know, from being a, from being a, you became a senior director eventually at ICI, correct? Yeah. So after you became a senior director at ICI, what made you want to found Greenbridge? Yeah, it's a really good question. So, so part of that, I mean, like when I when I started um, doing deals, you know, my title was associate director, and, and to get um, to get into the more senior positions, we'd have to go into into a full commission role, and then and then once you hit certain sales targets, your the t- my title would increase as well. So I was fortunate; I had some good momentum. I worked really hard. Um, and you know, took took a risk on myself to go full commissions um, without having any kind of base salary, and then uh, moved on to hit certain sales targets and get a, get a more senior title as well. Um, and then I think when I, when I was at a senior director level, and I was um, you know, you asked me what prompted me to start and found my own brokerage with Greenbridge Capital. Uh, it's a few things. I think one of the things is that I've kind of always wanted to start my own business. It's kind of been 
uh, something that's been of interest to me for many years and you know starting with business school and, and growing up and, and so on it's, it's, I've always thought that to be quite interesting and something that I'd want to do um, and then the, the other the other reason would be um, to help provide better service to my clients I think that's been my my driving goal and my my ambition has always been if I can do a better job for my clients then I'm going to find a way to do that whatever it takes to do that um, and so I think that that was the combination of things wanted to start my own business and wanted to do a better job for my clients and I think I think for me um, it was a combination of reasons um, you know starting my own company would allow me more freedom and capacity and capability to service my clients even better at least uh, at least from from my perspective because you have more control over the transaction because it's your company you control it right exactly and, um, how difficult was it to create your own like what was the process to create your own uh, mortgage brokerage um, uh, it was quite challenging, actually. It was quite a bit of work. I mean, the, the first the first big step is regulatory, um, and so getting getting licensing in various provinces. Um, it's quite a bit of red tape, quite a lot um, of forms to fill, quite a lot uh, of steps to to jump through. So that took quite a bit of time and effort. Um, and then there's you know it, it's actually quite a lot more work than I than I thought it would be, frankly. Uh, you know, I thought you know. Right now, all all I'm getting from my brokerage or the main the main benefits would be, you know, I get some analyst support to help me with my deals, and I get a bit of office space. So if I and I thought if I hired some people and I got some office space, I would have the same thing. But in reality, it was a lot. There's a lot more to it, and it was. Um, you know, we just it's we founded our company in September of 2021, so it's been just over a year. Just over a year. And it's been an incredibly intense year. There's been so much to do, so much to think about um, when it comes to managing a team, uh, to all the regulatory compliance things that we need to deal with, uh, to still servicing our clients and do a good job for them. Um, there, there's a lot, and I would, I would, I would tell, tell people, don't underestimate how much is involved in starting a new business, because I sure did. Uh, it was it was a lot of work, you know. And looking back, I'm glad I did it. But um, you know, be prepared for for a really big undertaking, you know. And um, yeah, when you when you when you hear about company founders starting their own business and, and really having to work hard, it's hard to describe until you're actually in it and knowing and and, and understanding how many different things you have to think about on a daily basis. Uh, but it's uh, it's also really rewarding in the sense of being able to see your clients um, be served well and, and and being happy with the service you're providing and um, and creating a great culture for your employees and your staff and um, it is you know it's, it's it's very rewarding from those perspectives as well. How long did it uh, take you to actually start this business in the sense where like? Uh, you knew you obviously you knew you wanted to create your own business and you knew at the time but like you said you started September 2021 how yeah. long was the build up before it was actually founded how yeah prob- prob- probably six months it was probably six months prior to that that I that I decided I wanted to or that I wanted to, or that I started looking at it more seriously and started really um, exploring and investigating various steps uh, to getting there so yeah and I would say like probably a pretty intense uh, four or five months prior uh, it was was spending time working towards creating the new business. Okay, okay, definitely. And then, so now, September twenty twenty one, you started, and then, how was your initial few steps of like beginning the company? You know, getting everything set up. Like, what were the challenges you faced specifically? Yeah, I mean, I would say like, um, you know, the the first. The, let me try and think. The, I guess the, the the challenges would be things like things you don't always think about, but. Um, 
IT systems, regulatory compliance, um, HR, because we had to start hiring our first employees as well. Um, so it's it's all the things that you know you don't know you don't know. Um, you know, I thought I knew a little bit about IT and HR and um, and compliance, but you know you don't you don't really know what's needed until you're actually doing it. So there's there's quite a bit that's involved there. Um, so that would probably be the most challenging part is like parts of the business that aren't involved in the day to day operations, but that need to need to be there to support uh, the business you do. Okay. That's, that's very interesting. I feel like there's there's a lot of challenges. And then uh, when did you guys, when did you feel like a company started to gain a flow where you knew like, the company's getting a little bit set up, it's comfortable? Yeah. You know, was there a specific point where you realized like, I know what I'm doing, I know where I'm at and uh, you know where you want to go? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's it's kind of a fluid one too. Um, I would say, you know, I, I'm, I'm fortunate because when I started the business, I had already worked in the industry for a number of years. And so I had... Uh, kind of a solid basis of knowledge, um, but in terms of like getting the business, you know, truly on its own feet, it probably took three three to six months before I really felt like we had our feet under us, and you know, we we had we had some processes and some steps really set up properly. Yeah, that's definitely pretty cool. So, what, what do you guys do now? Like, what's your day to day like? And yeah day in the life uh, well I mean I'll tell you a bit about like what our company does so essentially we're a commercial mortgage brokerage and uh, we were chatting with this before we started recording but um, you know what we do is we'll we're we're the we're the sort of the point of contact or the 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 advisor between the borrower and the lender uh, for all mortgages other than other than what a consumer would get for a single family mortgage to buy their own house, for example. But for everything other than that, whether it's um, an existing property or they're building something new or uh, it's a property that isn't, uh, isn't in, in good enough shape or isn't achieving market income, those are different types of loans that we do. And then for asset classes, it's everything from apartment buildings to retail plazas, industrial warehouses, office buildings, seniors' homes, hotels, land. And there's a whole bunch of other asset classes as well. You so do it's like fourplexes, eightplexes, stuff like that as well. Yeah, it's, for on the multifamily side, side, it usually starts with five units or more. Is what's considered commercial. Commercial, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So we'll so we'll do we do that sort of thing, construction or term or or what we call bridge, which is in between um, earning full income. So so anyway, so we do so that's kind of what we do in terms of uh, types of mortgages, the asset classes and. Yeah. What what does uh, how do you guys qualify someone? Let's just say I come in through the door and I want to get a I want to get a mortgage from you. Yeah. How would you qualify me? Yeah. So like the, the biggest difference between residential mortgages and commercial mortgages is net worth. So um, for residential mortgages, um, residential mortgage lenders tend to look at how much income is this person making or how much are they declaring. <clears throat> when it comes to commercial mortgages, many times it's uh, it's it's companies that are borrowing the money, and they're individuals that are backing the loan or, or guaranteeing the loan and the support for that is more based on net worth in other words that means what are the, what is the value of all the assets you own less all the all the debts that you have um, so it's equity in your home it's cash it's um, stocks and bonds that sort of thing uh, that's how that's how someone qualifies and that's that's in terms of the guarantee and then the other part of it is having some experience so you know, uh, I, I like to say so everyone's got to start somewhere. And so, you know, if it's your first project, um, be prepared to pay a higher interest rate. But uh, but there's generally mortgages available. And once you've successfully completed a few projects, then you can you tend to be able to get 
into lower interest rate uh, mortgages from more conventional sources. What is the average interest rate someone would get? Yeah, it's 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 an interesting question because it's very different than what it would have been six months ago. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> that's the hot topic of the market right now. Yeah, exactly. So it, it depends. Like, it, like for example, on the lower end of the spectrum, if someone's buying an apartment building or refinancing an apartment building, interest rates today were were early mid October are probably in the low four percent range, um, and and that's if you're getting a CMHC insured multifamily property. If you're getting that with a bank or if you're doing something for uh, retail, office, or industrial, one of those other asset classes, your interest rates are probably um, in the mid 5% range today. Um, and, then, and then I would say if it, comes, if it comes down to construction loans or bridge loans, those would start at around prime plus one and a half. And prime rate today is five and a half. So one and a half over that is seven. So uh, construction and bridge loans would start at about 7% on a floating rate basis over prime. And then they go off from there. How was that compared to six months ago? <laughs> Significantly higher. So prime was about three percent lower. So your your um, prime plus one and a half being seven percent was previously four uh, percent six months ago, and the interest rates that are in the low fours were in the two percent range at that time. Uh, so significantly lower uh, six months ago. But um, as you mentioned, it's a hot topic in the news right now, and and that's what's been going on. Are you coming across clients or anything that are now struggling to deal with uh, these new interest rate hikes? Yes, I would say so. Uh, especially, especially people that have taken on a lot of risk in the last few years um, are are coming to a point where, you know, if they if they're carrying a lot of vacant land, for example, and they have really expensive financing on on it, um, you know, that that becomes a bit of a challenge um, to be able to put money together to pay for interest expense, for example, um, or people that are refinancing a building, hoping to pull money out of it, but not being able to put out. To pull out as much as they would have wanted, or even even having to put in some money to a mortgage in order to refinance it, um, and same with purchases, people aren't able to get as much uh, as much leverage uh, as they would before, and they're needing to put more money down to buy buildings. Um, so it's so it's definitely it's 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 more challenging for a lot of people in the current environment. But yeah, you know, I, I think in times like this, it it helps to have a good advisor, and I think that's where. We've actually been fortunate. We've been able to pick up a lot of business in this time because um, it's not a, it's not an easy market to navigate, and and uh, we've been helping clients navigate through times like this where knowing the right lender or the right source of capital, the right way to structure a deal can make all the difference. It's the quality you give, you know, the service you give. So mm-hmm. I guess if you're giving them, a, I feel like your point is if you're giving them a high quality and you know you're able to give them the right advice in this condition that mm-hmm. you know they'll most likely come back to you and I guess probably I guess some of those people probably referred other clients to you because of the quality of service you're giving to your clients right exactly I think that's big on exactly yeah. and then where do you see the market shifting now mm. it's an interesting question like I think um, I think in terms of interest rates, I mean, so, so many ways to tackle that question, but in terms of interest rates, what I'm telling my clients is, you know, for the next three to six months, be prepared for higher interest rates, both uh, on the on a floating rate basis and on a fixed rate basis. I think the the Bank of Canada's mandate is to combat inflation, and and right now inflation has been quite stubborn. And you know, it sounds like you're studying supply chain management for, with good reason because of supply chain challenges. And so with the supply chain challenges, it's, it's causing prices to stay elevated. And, uh, and that's causing inflation to stay high. And when that's, inflation stays high, the Bank of Canada is forced to raise interest rates to combat inflation. And so all that's to say, I think the next three to six months, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm 
My opinion is that interest rates in the short run will, will rise, both on a fixed and variable basis. Um, and then after that, time will tell. You know, if we're uh, if inflation starts to come down uh, with the impact of higher interest rates and whatever else is going on in the economy, then maybe interest rates start settling down a bit, and that helps the economy recover. Uh, so that's one way to look at it. Uh, the other way to look at it is maybe geographically. So we're in Calgary. Um, I think Calgary and Alberta in general is a really good place to be right now. Um, interprovincial migration is is uh, one of the highest in the country, if not the highest in the country right now. So people are moving to Alberta from Ontario and BC primarily, as well as on some other provinces. And um, you're starting to see some of that some of that migration happen, uh, which which will be good because as you have more population. They need places to rent or places to stay, and so that that helps the housing market, um, and that uh, that helps support the economy here in general as well. So, um, I think Alberta is is a good um, is a good place to be right now and to stay, uh, and it's it's an interesting province because as you well know, there's booms and busts. Yeah. Um, but I think we're going into another cycle here in Alberta specifically um, that's going to be a bit stronger, notwithstanding the global and Canadian economy as a whole might face some challenges coming up. Definitely, definitely. And you mentioned earlier that uh, you work you do you work in BC and other and Alberta and other provinces as well. So how does that differ working in dealing with the I guess you could say the market challenges in Alberta mm-hmm. versus British Columbia or in any other province that you may work in. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Like I think it, it's kind of, it's it's been really nice because it provides a form of natural hedge and it helps ensure that um, you know people's that, that our skill set is is pretty well honed for different asset classes so for example in Calgary there's a you know a big slowdown in cons- construction of new condo projects over the last few years but we were doing some of those projects in BC and Ontario uh, so that was so that was interesting so you know got us uh, got us used to doing number of those provinces number of those projects and now Ontario and BC the residential condo prices have been coming down and so they're doing a lot fewer of those projects and it's those projects those kind of projects starting to happen in Calgary now and so it's kind of an interesting cycle we're able to do different things in different provinces at different times depending on the economic cycle uh, so it kind of is a bit of a natural hedge for our business but also helps keep our keep our skills sharp and fine-tuned for um, for our clients what did you learn I guess from from seeing, like, did you learn anything from learning how, um, I guess in BC, how the market shifted here and how some of those aspects are coming in to Calgary? And do you see some aspects from Calgary going into BC now? Yeah, it's a good question. Like, I think one thing I noticed was, is you know, in, in the Ontario and BC housing markets, I found interest rates um, were a bigger factor in, how, in house price, residential house prices going down. So when interest rates rose, it was a stronger impact on BC and especially greater Vancouver and greater Toronto area housing prices coming down. Whereas in Alberta, and uh, you know, Calgary and Edmonton, for example, the impact wasn't as strong. And part of that is the, the oil and gas industry and, and sort of the base that it provides. So it was interesting, it's interesting to observe like, you know, a higher interest rate market impacts different provinces impacts the housing market in different provinces to different extents. Definitely, definitely. I, th- I read an article from CMHC the other day and they said since the February highs, the average house price in Canada from February, I think, until the end of August has dropped 20%. Mm-hmm. And most of those bigger percentages are in the Vancouver and Toronto area where some places are even 25% where the houses decreased. And in Calgary, that you know, I've noticed that you know it might be under 10% in a lot of areas and especially... Uh, new construction of different things, those are still didn't drop as much in Calgary. It's mostly the older houses 
And I feel like uh, during COVID, a lot of people have decided to shift that they want something new. They've been forced to stay at home all the time. And then when you're at home all the time, you want to renovate your house. A lot of people do renovations. And if you don't want to do renovation, they're looking for somewhere new, change of environment mm-hmm. and these things. And um, I think a lot of people are looking into newer housing. That's why the prices haven't dropped as much. And obviously, the supply chain issues with dealing with uh, trying to build new houses. Yeah. I feel like that's been a big issue of why the prices have still stayed kind of high for new construction. And mm-hmm. and if you think about it, our prices are still much, much lower than these other provinces. So it's, it's very attractive. Like if you're in Vancouver, or you're in Toronto, and you know, um, you can sell your house for a million plus, and you know, you can come here, you can buy a house, and if you can get a job here, you know, what's so bad? We're the sunniest, we're the sunniest city in Canada, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's bang on. I think that's been happening quite a bit. People selling selling their, their, their large homes for good, good values in Toronto and Vancouver and moving to Calgary. Um, so that's that's been a trend. And, and further to that, too, is, you know, even if you can find a job in Calgary, but your job allows you to work remotely. Remotely now, yeah. No, yeah, then, then, you can, then you can move somewhere where living costs are lower or the lifestyle is a bit better. And... Um, and that's been happening quite a bit as well. So that's specifically about housing. How has that affected commercial in the sense where maybe you see people come from other provinces and what, what incentivizes them to invest in commercial in Alberta? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I would say like, you know, when we, when we think about commercial real estate, um, so I mean, you know, apartment buildings are, are part of that. And I think with apartment buildings, when interest rates rise, um, people can't qualify for mortgages for their homes as easily. And so they're forced to stay renting for longer. Um, and they might be renting larger units or paying more in rent. And so um, so that's actually putting upward pressure on rental rates. Um, and that's been observed in Calgary, for example, and in many markets across the country. As housing prices are coming down, rental rates are coming are coming up. Um, and so that's, that's actually helping increase or maintain the values of, uh, of these apartment buildings. And so that's actually been been attracting quite a lot of, uh, of people is is upper pressure on rental rates and in in Alberta there isn't rent control and so it's attractive for investors to invest in a province that doesn't have rent control for apartment buildings for example. What is rent control? So rent control for apartment buildings basically is a restriction by the province to 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 owners of apartment buildings that restricts the amount of rent increase that they can pass on to their tenants that are still staying there. So once a tenant moves out, there's less restriction on rental rates, but while a tenant is, is in a building, in Alberta, for example, a landlord can increase their, their rental rate to market rent, whereas in Alberta, sorry, whereas in BC or in Ontario, there is the, the, the province provides the number as to how much you can increase your rents by, and generally that number is quite low. It's about a couple of percent, for example. Um, so that's that's attracting people to Alberta to invest in Alberta is that there's no rent control for apartment buildings for one, um, and then I would say the other things as well. You know, I'd say like every asset class has its own <coughs> pros and cons. Um, the industrial asset class, for example, has been very strong over the last few years. So when <coughs> when COVID hit, people started ordering things more uh, and not going out and shopping, for example. Uh, for whatever items that they would normally shop for, and so because people are ordering more goods, they needed uh, these goods need to be stored somewhere, and they tended to be stored in warehouses, industrial warehouses, and so there's more of a demand for industrial warehouse space, and so that increased the value of those assets. Um, you know, put upper pressure on rental rates, and when, when it did that, it put upper pressure on values, and so that that asset class has generally been doing really well. Um, whether it's Alberta or other provinces has generally been a strong uptick in that asset class. 
Uh, and retail, <clears throat> retail is an interesting one. It really struggled during COVID, uh, but it started to come back now. Um, you know, there's there's still still not as strong as it was before in terms of uh, real estate values and rental rates, but uh, but really started has started to recover uh, quite a bit. And then you can we could go on. You know, office is a very unique asset class with the amount of office vacancy in downtown Calgary. It's been uh, that asset class in Calgary has been challenged, and around the country, it's been challenged as well. Um, you know, certain certain cities like Toronto, for example, the average commute to get into an office could be an hour or so. And so, after COVID, people weren't as enthusiastic about it's traveling for an hour to, to, to commute. And so, uh, you know, some of those office <clears throat> spaces are very underutilized right now. So, every asset class has its own story. Um, you know, hotels was interesting too. People stopped traveling during COVID, but since then, I've been traveling a lot more. Um, so every asset class has its own story, but um, it's definitely it's definitely interesting to observe some of the trends. Yeah, well, there's a lot of different trends. Where do you see the trends heading in the office market in uh, in Calgary now? Now that like you know, I guess I've heard a lot of companies are investing in Calgary, especially IT and tech companies. Yeah. How do you see that affecting the the office market in Calgary? Yeah, I think I think in the in the long run, it's going to move in the right in the right direction. I mean, there's downtown office specifically you know has a very big vacancy number so it's going to take quite a bit of time for that to come back down to normal levels but things that are helping it are there's been some conversions of office buildings into apartment buildings oh, well, that's exactly what i was about to ask you yeah yeah, yeah so that's starting to happen that's right true. now um and I, and I think it's a very positive trend because i think there's need for rental and there's becoming there's such a big office vacancy level in downtown calgary i think that's a very good thing and the city of calgary has been very supportive of that They've been providing some incentives to developers um, and real estate owners to do that. So that's been one. That's been one thing. And then I think the other. The other thing as well is um, in the in the office market. To, to, <clears throat> excuse me. To your point, companies are starting to make investments in that in that space, and they're starting to hire some more employees. So you know, in a market like Calgary, where the commute times aren't as long, um, there isn't as much a pushback from employees working in the office, though. Um, there is still material change in how people work these days. So I would say, like, to answer your question, I think, you know, there's there's a, a good business case for office vacancy downtown Calgary to start coming down, but it may take some time. It may take some time. And uh, when you're assessing someone about how much they get approved for, let's just say it's an apartment building, for example, yeah. do you guys look at rental values, how high rental is to see how much they can, like, the profitability of the project? For sure. It's a really good question. It's, it's one of the most important parts of assessing how much someone can qualify for in terms of a loan um, is what is the income from the property and how does the income from the property compare to the mortgage payment that they would be getting. Uh, so as as interest rates rise, the mortgage payments also increase. And so lenders like to see a certain ratio of income to mortgage payment. And so that's also meant that the, mortgage, the amount of mortgage um, that people can get has become lower. Uh, but it's a really good question, and it's a, it's an important ratio uh, in the industry. Is the ratio of cash flow from the property to mortgage payment, and making sure that's in line. So, what's a healthy ratio that you would you would yeah. recommend here? I, I would say like most lenders look for a ratio of one point two five, and so what that means in simple terms is one hundred and twenty five dollars of income for every hundred dollars of mortgage payment, for example. Now, it'd be a healthy ratio. Some lenders like to see a bit more. Some lenders are okay with a bit less, but that's sort of a rough guideline. And they call that the DCSR ratio, right? Exactly. Yeah. You got it. And then, do you ever like come across clients where you just tell them that it's not possible for them to to 
do this project and uh, how is that having a conversation with some clients that you know this isn't really feasible for you yeah it's a really good question and we're unfortunately having to have more of these conversations these days whether it's a development project and and what we're projecting for cost versus versus um, income uh, isn't always in the right in the right balance so usually lenders like to see a 10 to 15 percent what we call return on cost so in other words if, if the cost of a building is is a hundred dollars Lenders want to see that the building is worth 115, 110 to 115 dollars. So it's at least a 10 or 15 percent return, and so that's the first thing that, like, uh, you know, is tougher. Uh, has been more challenging these days as construction costs have risen over the last number of number of months, and um, and there's been some some challenges with interest rates and what that means for mortgage uh, for mortgages. So we're having to have some more of those conversations. So. Um, luckily now it seems like construction costs are starting to come down now which is good which is really helping things and as I was talking about earlier in the multifamily space rental rates are starting to come up as well so that's been helping things as well and obviously the market's completely different from when you started in the industry from 2009 even to mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. and now let's just say you're a student now and mm-hmm. you're at university you're, edu- yeah. you're learning and educated and you're interested in real estate yeah um, let's just say you don't know what to do, you want to do in real estate, but you know you're interested in real estate. Yeah. What market would you? What markets would you say would be really intriguing for new people to enter right now? Mm. Yeah, you know, I would, I would honestly say, uh, get your foot in the door. Uh, it's an industry. It's, it's once you get into the, the hardest part I find is breaking into the industry. Once you're in the industry, there's a lot of transferable skills, and it's a relatively small industry as well. And so my, my biggest advice would be to get your foot in the door. Um, and don't worry if it's not the perfect role or the perfect part of the industry or the perfect pay, but get your foot in the door um, and get into the industry and start learning and learn as much as you can and network as much as you can. Um, and it's much easier to, to go from one point to another once you get in. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of people actually value that at uh, Risa U Calgary mm-hmm. at the Real Estate Student Association because our goal is to try to educate students as much as possible about the real estate industry and kind of bridge that gap between real estate and students. Mm. And um, in doing so, like our club, uh, we host networking events, for example. Um, we have an investment club where like you know, students can come in and they can learn about do investment workshops and see the feasibility of a project, you know, see if it works. And I know last year and this year we have planned to do like building tours so like students can come in they can engage they can see how a building um, how I guess the commercial realtors lease out different buildings they, you know like see the vacancy rates in certain buildings and mm-hmm. uh, for example last year we uh, I went on one actually the district Beltline mm-hmm. tour and uh, the commercial workers at the time were mentioning before they even went to the building it was uh, before they started working with the building it was a vacant I think like 60 uh, 40 something percent vacant and then the day we were there was actually 8% vacant. And I think that was mm-hmm. a matter of a year and a half. So it was kind of cool learning about that. And um, I feel like a lot of students, like if you're new to RISA and you haven't really learned much about it, I feel like it's a very, very useful that you, sh- you think about joining. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to join this club, it's only $20 for the entire year, you know. Mm-hmm. And you join this club and you have access to all these different events and uh, these workshops and you, know, you get to really connect with people and who have the similar mindset as you. And... Um, I'm honestly very happy that I joined this uh, joined this club because I got to meet so many people already, mm-hmm. and this is my first year as actually uh, an executive and a VP. And you know, sitting down and talking with you was very, very insightful. And I think a lot of people were able to gain 
get a lot of knowledge from someone in the industry because as I talked to you before, uh, not a lot of people are willing to share their information out there because you know they might think, oh, someone might copy me or someone might be jealous of me and this and that. But I feel like if you have good intentions and mm-hmm. you know you want to share your information and you want to help people out as much as you can, I feel like good will come to you. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, you provide a good quality to your clients. And I feel like that's the reason why you've been so successful in the industry. And I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and you know talking talking to me and talking on this podcast because I feel like a lot of people have a lot they can learn from this. And with that, I want to ask you if there's anything else you want to add to the podcast. Is there any more advice, tips, and tricks that you'd want to give to any uh, any students? Yeah, and um, and I, and I agree with a lot of what you're saying here. I think it's I think it's great for students to um, to to join this club and and get exposed to as much as they can within the industry because. I mean, I don't know what it is like now. You know, it sounds like it's it's still not as not as common and popular as it uh, as I think it should be. But um, yeah, I, I would say you know, um, learn as much as you can. You know, read market reports. A lot of market reports out there are, are free, um, and so you know, find a way to to read up on some of these reports and network. Um, there's a lot of networking organizations as well out there that uh, I think would be good. Uh, starting with starting with Risa probably and, and getting some exposure into what you guys are doing uh, but continue to network with people that are in the industry learn about it um, and figure out where which direction you want to get into which which direction you want to go in um, and get your foot in the door it's my probably my biggest piece I would say uh, if you want to get in the industry get your foot in the door and then build from there yeah, as you mentioned because when you were learning in the industry you said before you went into it, you sat down with a lot of people, coffees, lunches, anyway, just learn as much as you can, you know, before you yeah. enter, know what you want to do. And, yeah. you know, at Risa, we even have a mentorship program where we have over 30 different people, real estate professionals. They, I think they work with different organizations like BOMA, ULI, they're mentors that work with these organizations. And um, if any of you guys haven't checked that out, you guys should definitely check it out because it's a free opportunity where there's over 30 mentors you can talk to and you can sit down it's a one-on-one you know you could get a coffee you could get a lunch with them and you can read into their bio you can learn a bit about them before you sit down so you can choose the person that maybe you the i guess the profession that you're interested in and you can learn about them because it's it's free of access it's a matter of you willing to give up your time and you willing to be able to actually put that effort in because if you don't work hard enough i don't think you're going to be able to get the results that you desire and yeah, I totally agree with that. Definitely, definitely. And I guess I guess that's a pretty good conclusion to this podcast, you know. I feel like yeah. a lot of insightful, uh, you know, uh, tips and tricks. And I, uh, I appreciate you taking the time out. And uh, I think we'll conclude the podcast on this. Thanks for everyone for listening. And thank you, Nadine, for being on this podcast. I really, really appreciate your time once again. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe one day, future, we'll do another podcast one day. You know, you never yeah. know. Yeah, I'm happy to. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. And... Uh, Looking forward to being in touch. Perfect. Thank you.